Tonight I'm going to ask a question, what makes you angry? Have you ever thought of that? I'm going to ask that question a little bit on the lighter side to begin. Uh, maybe that's why I have kids here. But ten little things that might make you irrationally angry. Number one, when your internet connection drops. Is that frustrating? Second one on the list that I found, when someone tries to talk to you when you're on the phone with someone and you're trying to do two things at once and can you just wait and maybe you have the earbuds in, they don't even know and they just keep talking and uh, ugh. Stubbing your toe. That one's never fun. I always get very frustrated at that. I always think my toe will fall off, yet I still have all ten. Number four, forgetting your password. Isn't this getting a little bit ridiculous? I mean, there's passwords for everything, everything, everything. Number five, people who tell you to calm down or cheer up when you're neither angry nor upset. <laughs> cheer up. I thought I was fine. <laughs> calm down. I am calm. Number six, anyone who puts empty cartons back in the fridge. You thought there was more left until there's not. Number seven, anyone pushes the elevator floor button after watching you just push it just two seconds ago. Your elevator button push was not good enough. Let me make sure it's pushed. Number eight, people who are completely unprepared for situations that they know are going to happen. Isn't there one of these in every class? There's a test today? Yeah, it's called finals. Like, that's the whole week, dude. Number nine, people who take up two parking spaces. I mean, really. And number 10, I have to resonate with having kids at home. Stepping in something wet after just putting on a clean pair of socks. I mean, that's about the worst. What makes you angry? <clears throat> I'm going to transition to this question. What makes the devil angry? Have you ever thought about that? What makes the devil angry? I suppose we could answer that in a variety of ways. But probably there's a common theme or thread for all of these answers we could come up with. And that is whatever brings an individual closer to Jesus makes the devil angry, right? Anytime a person is baptized, it makes the devil angry. The fact that you're here tonight makes him angry. But there's one more specific thing I want to look at tonight that we find in Scripture. It's in Revelation Chapter 12, verse 12, it says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath. The devil's upset. Because he knows that he has a, what? Short time. Let me just ask, do you get the sense with all the things happening around us that the devil is angry? Do you get the sense that he knows he has but a short time? Do you get the sense that this is not business as usual? Skipping to verse 17, it says, And the dragon, 
the devil, that serpent of old, was enraged with the woman, which is God's church, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, or some versions say the remnant. And here are the characteristics of the remnant. Who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Here the devil is upset, he's enraged, he's filled with wrath at God's church at end time. Why? Because they do these two things. They have these two things. And it makes him so angry. Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Those are two characteristics of God's last day people that are unique to seventh day Adventists. I mean, you go through the phone book, and how many are worshiping on the seventh-day Sabbath? Most are not. And of the few that might be some Seventh-day Baptist or something, how many have the testimony of Jesus? Let's flesh that out a little bit further. Revelation 19.10 tells us, For the testimony of Jesus is, we could put an equal sign there, the spirit of prophecy. Spirit of prophecy. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about the spirit of prophecy. I just like to stick with the Bible. And I say, well, amen to the Bible. But we have, throughout the Bible, prophets. And we are told that God's end-time church will keep the Ten Commandments, all ten, and have the testimony of Jesus. And the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the idea of having a prophet is a biblical idea, especially for God's last day church. Amos 3, verse 7 says, Surely the Lord God does how much? Nada, or nothing, unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the who? Prophets. God wants us to know. God wants us to be prepared for what's coming. Matthew 7, 15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous Wolves. So this is interesting. We have true prophets at the end of time. There is a true, genuine, if you will, but then there's also going to be counterfeits. So how are we to know which is the true and which is the false? And we have entire studies on that. But there are two dangers. Accepting the counterfeit is certainly a danger, but rejecting the genuine is a danger too. Right? I mean, if we have money up here, and I have, I don't know, I've never seen a $1,000 bill, but maybe I have a bunch of $100 bills, and I pass them all out, and I say, one is real and one is false, you certainly want to know which one is real. And you'll probably stay up late tonight trying to figure it out so you can spend it. So how do we know what the genuine is and not reject that? That's a danger as well. How can we tell the difference between the true and the false? I've put together, these are biblical tests of a prophet. 
Uh, this is not unique to me. And if you want to go back and study this, I would encourage you to take a picture of this. And this would be a great study. We have the verses there. But for the sake of time, I'm going to make some assumptions that perhaps you're aware of the tests of a prophet. If not, take a picture and go back and study. That's fine. But prophetic accuracy, Jeremiah 8 verse 9 says, If a prophet makes a prediction, it's going to become true. It will come to pass 100% of the time. Why? Because a true prophet doesn't guess at the future. God tells him what's going to happen, and sure enough, it happens. Now, there's some caveats to that. There is a thing called conditional prophecies. Remember Jonah, and he went and he preached, and then they repented, and so the thing didn't happen. That was one of those, if you don't do such and such, then, but they did, and so it didn't. But unless it's a conditional prophecy, it's 100% accuracy. There's all kinds of people, uh, Gene Dixon and, and all these others that have made predictions, Nostradamus and all the rest, and they tout, oh, 60% accuracy. So what with 60% accuracy? You and I can guess at 50% accuracy sometimes. And if I have the devil in my back pocket who has access to every conversation on the planet, you don't think he can guess more accurately? So who cares about 60% accuracy? prophet of God is 100%. The second one on the list, biblical faithfulness. In Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 4, it says if a prophet makes a prediction and then it comes true, and then he says, now that I have you all on my side, let's go after other gods. And the verse says, have nothing to do with that prophet. The third one exalts Jesus. 1 John 4, 1 and 2, it says, test the spirits. There's many false prophets. But a true prophet will confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's important too. If they're saying, no, Jesus isn't who you need, he doesn't do anything for you, false prophet. The fourth, commandment keeping or keeping the commandments of God. Isaiah 8.20, it says, to the law and the testimony, they speak not according to this word. How much light is in them? No light. False prophet. Physical tests. We have several, some in Numbers 2 and Daniel. Somewhere they, their eyes remain open or they have no physical strength or they have no breath. And then we also have spiritual fruitage or by their fruits you will know them, it says in Matthew 7, 15 to 20. Has a whole section there. Beware of false prophets. Look for their fruit. And it talks about a tree that doesn't produce good fruit. You cut it down. That's the only kind of fruit tree I've ever had in my yard. It dropped this stupid little stuff that I'm cutting up with the lawnmower, and you try and eat it, and it's bitter, and it's no good, and we finally cut that sucker down. I'm done with this thing. And it talks about in that verse, oh, well, we think maybe it's a little bit of both. No, it's either going to produce good fruit, or it's going to produce bad fruit or no fruit, but it's not going to be a little bit of both. This notion that somehow somebody's inspired a little bit. What is that? They're either inspired by God or they're not. So that is the biblical test of a prophet of how we can know. So if I were to stand up here to you today and say, I have been called, I am a prophet of God, you would put me through this test and probably I'd fail right there at number one. What's your prophetic accuracy? Uh... You're going to have breakfast tomorrow? I don't know. Do you know what does not appear on the list? Which is why I wonder if this is not the reason people reject 
God's prophets, when the prophet disagrees with me, somehow it went against what I like, what I prefer. Connection lost. Well, connect again. And so I'm just going to throw out the prophet. People do that with the Bible too. I like the Bible. I love the Bible. Oh, I found a verse. It steps on my toes. I'm going to throw out the Bible. Or at least I'm going to rip out that page because I don't want to read that again. That hurt my feelings. It's not on the list. How about this one? The prophet does not fit my paradigm. Well, I think God is more this way. We see that throughout the Old Testament over and over and over and over again. If the prophet comes and says something to God's people who are living in sin and sacrificing to idols and Baal and all the rest, they stone the prophet. We'll get to that here more in a minute. Another one that's not on the list, when the prophet disagrees with the latest peer pressure from the scientific community. Has science ever been wrong? Okay, thankfully, God's people always accepted the word of his prophets, or did they? Did God's people always accept the word of his prophets? Let's look at a few examples here. Oh, now it doesn't want to move. This topic makes the devil angry. Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel, that's code word for God's people, have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. He says, I alone am left. That wasn't, in fact, the case. But they did kill the prophets of God. Why? Because they were telling them things they didn't want to hear. It's like the whole, la, 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 la. If I plug my ears, does that make truth cease to exist? I mean, of all things that we do, isn't this kind of a juvenile thing? It's like when you play hide-and-go-seek with a two-year-old and they say, okay, come find me, and they do like this. I'm still right here just because you can't see me. Here's another one, Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing why is God sending these prophets? Just to condemn, to guilt, to make them feel terrible? Is that the point? I mean, if, if fire was going to break out in this building, wouldn't you want someone to come run in here and say, there's a fire down? No. We'd rather just have nobody tell us. Ignorance is bliss, right? The whole la, 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 la. And over and over and over, God is trying to communicate with his people important truths, biblical truths, things that are going to happen, ways that they are deviating from his covenant, from his will, from his plan. And over and over and over again, they say, you know what? We don't like what this guy has to say. Let's run him out of town on a rail. Let's see if we can stone the prophet. Acts 7, 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? I mean, there's a track record throughout Scripture of how we treat the prophets of God that is not good. 
And so I have to ask the question, are we ever doing the same thing today? Now, granted, there's a context to prophets and what they have to say. There are timeless principles, and we can misapply those principles and misunderstand and sometimes make the, the prophets say something that they never intended to say. But if we're not careful, we just pull out our rocks and we stone the prophet and we just say, we don't want to hear any of this. To our own detriment. So again, two dangers, accepting the counterfeit and rejecting the genuine. Some say this idea of God communicating through a prophet is a new or weird idea. Have you ever thought that? I mean, you're out in the community, and somebody says, oh, what, what do you belong to a denomination? Oh, yes, we're Seventh-day Adventists. I've never heard of that before. What do you all believe? Right? And we're told that we're supposed to talk first on points that we can agree. You know, we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and that we can have new life in Him, and that someday we can live forever for, with Him, and so on. Um, but we usually don't lead with the idea, oh, as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe that we have our own prophet. Maybe you lead with that. I don't. Because the response that comes back is, I imagine if you were to say that, they'd say, your own prophet? What are you, like Mormon or something? No, we're not Mormon. But you believe in you have your own prophet. Not really. Now, is it true that all of our doctrine comes from here? It is. Do we need Ellen White to prove our doctrine? We don't. But at the same time, this same Bible talks about God's end-time church will have the gift of prophecy, and I believe it to be Ellen White. And it's also this same theme we have throughout Scripture, yet we like to just kind of say, well, Check this out. In every major period of earth's history, God has raised up a prophet to prepare his people for what is impending. Is that true? Let's think about this. When the flood was coming, whom did God raise up? Noah. He was a prophet. When God was going to raise up a chosen people who was the father of Israel, whom did God raise up? Father Abraham. He was a prophet. When the Exodus came, who did God raise up? Moses, he was a prophet. When the monarchy came to Israel, whom did God raise up? Samuel, he was a prophet. When the exile came for the kingdom, whom did God raise up? Well, we have a host of them, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and so on. When the Messiah came the first time, whom did God raise up? John the Baptist. When the Gospels go to the Gentiles in all the world, who did God raise up? Paul, we were just reading about it to our kids last night. They ran Paul out of town with stones. And when the Messiah is coming the second time, who would God raise up? Does it make sense that God would say, nah, we're done with that. We've tried it. Doesn't work. Forget it. People make fun of us. We'll just kind of, eh. Does that make sense to you? I mean, is this a new weird thing? Or is this the way God has been working all the way through? You have your own prophet? 
Do you not believe in prophets in the Bible? Giving present truth for what's impending? You don't believe in Noah and Moses and Father Abraham and Paul and John the Baptist? No, I believe in all of them. Good, then you believe in prophets too. You're one of us. We're one of us. I believe with all my heart that God has blessed the Seventh-day Adventist Church with the gift of prophecy. Ellen G. White. It's amazing to me how for some this is almost like a bad word. We don't talk about Ellen White. To which I think to myself, why not? Her first vision, age 17, about God leading his people on this narrow path to the kingdom. Only had a third grade education, but she received more than 2,000 prophetic visions and dreams, wrote over 50 books, lectured to thousands on three continents. Three books, that's 55,000 pages of manuscript. And when your teacher says, I'm going to need that paper on my desk in the semester, it needs to be 25, 30, 35 pages. You say, ah, you just freak out. 55,000 handwritten pages, third grade education. Well, you know, sometimes that just happens. Probably couldn't sleep. 5,000 periodical articles. <clears throat> This remarkable woman, though almost entirely self-educated, has written and published more books in more languages which circulate to the greater extent than any other woman in history. You would think in the day and age that we live, you know, the whole woman power and all the rest, that the press would pick this up and spread it far and wide. This is woman power. But the devil's angry. He says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. They might actually read her stuff. We'll just bury her in a hole somewhere. Most translated woman writer in literature, the most translated American author of either gender. Seventh-day Adventists believe in the Bible, and the Bible only is a source of every Bible doctrine, and every teaching of the Adventist church comes directly out of the Bible. So we're not trying to replace the Bible. She's the lesser light pointing to the greater light. But before we're done, I'm going to show you studies. Those that read her regularly, read their Bible more, not less. <clears throat> so let's go through these biblical tests of a prophet. Prophetic accuracy. That's the first one. In the 1800s, people had no idea that sugar and fat contributed to coronary heart disease. They were eating all kinds of garbage. Ellen White was eating all kinds of garbage. The pioneers were eating all kinds of garbage. They were dying too quickly. <clears throat> So she wrote about this Garden of Eden diet of whole grains, fruits, nuts, vegetables. The same diet that the American Heart Association has now recommended. They also say this is an anti-cancer diet. Where did she come up with it? Who was writing about it back then? What books was she drawing this from? Clive McKay of Cornell University. This woman is a hundred years ahead of her time in the area of diet, he writes. Well, you know, sometimes that just happens. Ministry of Healing 327. Tobacco is a slow, insidious, but most malignant poison. That's what she wrote way back when doctors were recommending cigars to their patients. You just need to have a few more cigars. 
and the tobacco smoke, take deep breaths. Those actually cleanse the lungs. That's what doctors were saying when she wrote this. We know now that's not exactly eh, accurate. Sometimes science is wrong, but keep wearing your mask. It wasn't until 1957 that the American Heart Association concluded that smoking was a causative factor in lung cancer. Not until 1957. Hey, you know, maybe this is a thing. The attitude of the mother can affect the unborn child, says Time magazine recently. Alan White wrote that over 100 years ago. How about poor hygiene of the time? The average life expectancy at birth, uh, let's see, where is it? And was only 32 years of age in 1800. Only 32. Y'all didn't know you were in midlife, did you? In 1850, it rose up to 41. By 1900, it was 50. By 1950, it was 67. And today, it's more like 79. That's the context in which she's writing these things, right? Why was that the case? Well, fruits and vegetables were largely avoided by many who believed that the deadly cholera epidemic of 1832 had been brought about by fruit. So let's just stop eating fruit. There's also a lack of refrigeration, and there's unsanitary processing. You're going to like this one. Most people seldom took a bath. And some authorities claim the average Americans of the 1830s never took a bath during their entire life. Yet you still got here somehow. Wonders never cease. <laughs> Even as late as 1855, New York City had only 1,361 bathtubs for its 629,000 residents. Ugh. Sanitation? You want to talk about sanitation? Look at this picture, by the way. That's a picture of a horse that's dead. Sewage was dumped onto the streets along with trash since there was not a garbage collection system. It was not uncommon for dead animals to lie in the street for weeks. Hospitals. Anybody ever come across where she writes, try to avoid hospitals? And so some people get fanatical with that and they say, you know, they, they're driving down the road, somebody's smashing them, they break their arm. No, I'm just going to do garlic. Like, what? Well, Sister White says to avoid hospitals, and so I don't go on pain of death. Let me show you the context. If you did get sick, you certainly didn't want to go to a hospital, as it tended to be a death sentence, a place people went to die. Bloodletting. That's where they just cut you and let the blood out and all those toxins come out. That's a good thing, right? Giving of mercury and strychnine, which is extremely poisonous. But in that age, it was thought that fever, vomiting, and diarrhea were signs of recovery. In fact, George Washington, President George Washington died, and the headline said, after receiving top medical attention, which included some of these things, we did all we could. We let a lot of that blood go, but he still died. <laughs> Surgery. That was done without anesthesia. So speed was of the essence. It is said that a good army surgeon in the Civil War could lop off a leg in 40 seconds. Don't try this at home, kids. 40 seconds. We need some strong guys to hold you down for 40 seconds, and then we run. And he won't be able to catch us. Okay, sorry. <clears throat> 
Since surgeons had no knowledge of germs or how infections spread, they did not feel it necessary to change aprons or knives or even wash their hands between surgeries. So I'm digging around in this person with all kinds of infection. I just wipe it on my apron. I come over and I dig over here. And I don't know. There's no germ theory. Mercy. How did Ellen White know the difference between the health fads of the day and sound science? Well, sometimes it just happens. I mean, is this, is this even possible? Third grade education? Or is it possible that she was God's mouthpiece for this movement? She predicted a huge rise in the occult and spiritualism and psychic phenomenon and astrology and communication with the dead. I could spend the next hour talking about how that's just gone out the roof. Or you could just go watch some of the most recent movie trailers and see all the mysticism that's in every last one of them. We'll move on. How about this one? The Roman Church now presents a fair front. She wrote this in Great Controversy, 571. The Roman Church, Catholic Church, now presents a fair front to the world, covering with apologies her record of horrible cruelties. What's the Catholic Church's most horrible cruelty? What happened in the Dark Ages? 50 million people, they estimate, were killed for their faith at the hand of the Roman Catholic Church. But we don't talk about that. We don't go there. No, no. But it's covering with their apologies, record of horrible cruelties. June 22, 2015, Pope apologizes to the Waldensian Church. Wow. So just pull out your great controversy, put a little box there and say, check. Among other things, every time I read Great Controversy, it seems like it's not less relevant, but more relevant. Biblical faithfulness. Oh, we're going to have to run here. In our time, there's a wide departure from the doctrines and precepts, and there is a need of a return to the great Protestant principle of the Bible, and the Bible only as the rule of faith and duty. She writes in other places, if you would read read your Bible, you wouldn't need me. She constantly is pointing us back to the Bible. Even that little book, Steps to Christ, it's Bible, 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 Bible. Even if she doesn't quote it, you say, I just read that recently. I know where that is. It's the Bible. Exalts Jesus. You know, we see that throughout her writings. Lift up Jesus, you that teach the people. Lift him up in sermon, in song, in prayer. One of thousands of examples. We're going to have to keep rolling here. Jesus is uplifted throughout this Conflict of the Ages series. I don't know if I'll mention this later, but this is where I would start. This set of books is incredible. If you did nothing else but read your Bible, and in the back of these is an index of, of, but they pretty much go in chronological order, you know, Patriarchs and Prophets starts with Genesis and goes on, then you have Prophets and Kings and so on. And to read my Bible and that Spirit of Prophecy book open, I'm going back and forth and back, and I'm taking notes in my Bible, and I get more blessing out of that. If I had nothing else on the planet to read, I would be fed by those two things. And this little set here, especially the Old Testament stuff, you read through the Old Testament, you're like, what was that? God, why'd you do that? Why'd you just wipe out everybody? Women and children, the whole thing. I don't know if I can serve a God like that. And then you read this, and she points out little things that you didn't see that were in the passage in the verse. And you say, wow. God allowed those people to be swallowed up in the earth so the rebellion wouldn't grow and the whole people be taken out. All right, I need to keep going. 
Desire of Ages, most highly recommended book uh, from Library of Congress. There's a quote there. I don't have time to read it to you. Um, commandment keeping. She says over and over, if you love him, you will keep his commandments. It's become one of my favorite verses. If you don't love him, don't bother. Truly. If it's not out of love, don't do it. He says in Isaiah, I abhor your sacrifices. I thought you gave the sacrifices. Yes, but it's not from their heart. They're offering the sacrifice and they're going to do whatever they want. He says, it drives me crazy when you do that. I wish you wouldn't do that. If you love me, then keep my commandments. Otherwise, don't bother. Physical tests. Uh, we've heard about this. Dr. Drummond was a doubter. He was a skeptic. Um, he happened to be present and saw that when she was envisioned, she wasn't breathing, and at other times her eyes would be wide open, supernatural st strength, and so on. And he became a believer. He was one out of, of many. And then spiritual fruitage. This little book, Education, it's a required textbooks, textbook in non-Aventist universities across this land because people say this is just a remarkable book. Uh, we have the largest Protestant educational system in the world. Where did that come from? Sometimes it just happens, I guess. Um, here are, are schools around the globe. It's, it's phenomenal. Over 1.1 million students attend over 5,600 schools, colleges, and universities in nearly 145 countries of the world. Here's a picture of Loma Linda University, one of the most prestigious medical schools in the world. Ellen White hand-picked the site. She was led by God, and she said, this is it. Seventh-day Adventists have the most extensive Protestant health system on earth. This has been a little while ago, 2005, but the secrets of living longer in National Geographic, and they showcased these blue zones, and books were written, uh, and it talked about longer life expectancy in Loma Linda, um, <clears throat> taking time for family, God, camaraderie, uh, all of these things, and, and exercises, basically our whole health message, including God and spiritual things, and they showcased this woman who I think has since passed away, but when she turned 100 years old, she renewed her driver's license for another five years. Uh, what keeps her going? She said, it's my Christian faith. I mean, that's incredible. She's still having a quality of life at 100 years old. This is one of the books, and he was on the Oprah Winfrey show. You probably never saw her, but maybe you heard of her briefly. She was way before your time. I'm dating myself. Um, people who are part of a faith group and actually show up four times a month live four to 14 years longer. Part of the health message. Um, Florida Hospital this is the hospital that's in our neck of the woods. U.S. News and World Report, 11 health habits that will help you live to 100. What's number eight? I mean, this is a secular magazine. What do they care? Live like a Seventh-day Adventist. Interestingly, you don't have to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Just live like one. Uh, I'll skip the quote. You can, if you want it, I'll, I'll give it to you later. Here's another one, Smithsonian. Again, a very secular magazine. A hundred most significant Americans of all time. Spring of 2015. And if you look at these various names, you have Neil Armstrong, Christopher Columbus, Susan B. Anthony, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, Helen Keller... Sojourner Truth, there's Oprah Winfrey, um, Ansel Adams, Billy Graham, 
Where's the one I'm looking for? There it is. Oh, Ellen G. White. Secular Magazine. Are you some damn this? Do you believe no? Do you know? Are you familiar with it? Well, Smithsonian just said she's one of the most 100 influential people. Really? Are you sure? Yeah. So I've started reading your stuff. It's amazing. Oh, you have? Cool. I don't bother. George Barna, he's a statistician. He does statistics. He's always running numbers. He crunches out stuff all the time, all the time, all the time. He asks this question. What's the most influential authors of pastors under 40 of all denominations? So think about this. All denominations. We have Baptists. We have Methodists. We have Episcopalians. I mean, all of them. And they're asking, what are the four most influential authors? And they say, well, we're reading stuff from James Collins, Tom Rainer, John Ortberg, and Ellen White. I saw this, I about fell over. Because while we're over here, you have two Baptist ministers or Methodists or maybe a mixed group. What are you reading? Man, Ellen White's amazing. I'm getting so much sermon material. Have you ever read Desire of Ages? Whoa, I got to the cross and I was just crying my eyes out. There's so much insight. I didn't know that it was there in Scripture, but it is. And I'm like over in the next booth as an Adventist pastor, like, are they talking about Ellen White over there? While we over here as Adventists, well, we don't really, you know, I mean, she's. I have a professor that I took class from. I'm going to have to be careful here. But he's making statements now that Ellen White is irrelevant for our time. She was good for back then, but she has nothing to say for us today. Excuse me? Really? Excuse me, Professor, with all due respect, have you read the book Great Controversy lately? Have you let, read the last, like, 12 chapters or so that deal with the times that we're in, like, now? And when I read it the last time versus, like, a few years prior, I thought, this is even more incredible than when I read it before. Things are happening just like she said. Not relevant? Back there? <clears throat> I'll try and calm down. I get a whiny voice, and then my wife said, you got whiny again. I say, sorry, dear. <clears throat> that and stand up straight. Ellen White believed in mission. We could talk about that. Um, lesser light to lead men and women to the greater light. Last survey, because I know I'm about done. North American Division did a church growth survey by Roger Dudley and Des Cummings, Jr. They surveyed 8,200 members of 193 different churches across North America. So this is an Adventist survey, 20 different measures of spiritual life, one pivotal question. They don't know it's a pivotal question, but this whole thing is hinging on this one pivotal question. Do you read Ellen White's writings or not? So you check the box. No, I really don't. Check. Yeah, I do. Check. It's just one of all the questions. But then they're comparing. This is the whole point of the survey now. They're going to compare. Does this group that checked the yes box different than this group that checked the no box? What do you think they found? Describe their relationship with Jesus was intimate. 
82% of the readers of Ellen White describe their relationship with Jesus as intimate versus only 56% of the non-readers. That's a pretty significant difference. 26% difference, actually. A high degree of assurance that they were right with God. Do you want to be right with God? I want to be right with God. Do you want to know that you're right with God? 82% of the readers of Ellen White versus 59% of the non-readers. A 23% difference. Involved in Christian outreach and service to the community. 73% of readers of Ellen White versus 49% of non-readers. That's a 24% difference. Have daily personal Bible study. This is the one that I was really interested in. Because sometimes you think, oh, they just, it's Ellen White this, and Ellen White, and Ellen White, and Ellen White. Now, granted, we should be proving all of our doctrines from the Bible. And we don't need to be going out in the community and say, well, Ellen White says this, because they say, who's that? Unless they're part of that group I was talking about. But here God's given us this precious gift are we using it? So here it is. 82% of the readers of Ellen White study their Bible regularly versus 47% of the non-readers. That's like a 35% difference. So the people that read Ellen White read their Bible more, not less. Now, don't you think if she was a false prophet, she'd be leading people away from Scripture? Absolutely. But if she's a true prophet, don't you think she's going to be pointing people back to Scripture? The lesser light pointing to the greater light? And I can speak only from my own experience, but when I read the Bible, I scratch my head a fair bit, but when I read them together, I have one aha moment after the next. It makes my Bible come alive. I say, wow, it's there. This is powerful. This is what they concluded. Seldom does a research study find the evidence so heavily weighted toward one conclusion. In the church growth survey, on every single item that deals with spiritual life, the member who regularly studies Ellen White's books tends to rank higher than does the member who reads them only occasionally or never. That's the Adventist advantage. But instead of reading her, we throw frocks at her. We bury her. We call her irrelevant. We don't need her. Leave us alone. We, we get hung up on some little thing about bicycles and we say, see, and we just throw it all out. Really? I mean, a grade schooler can study that out and say that was for the rich and famous and they were spending too much of their income on these bicycles and wearing big hats and la di da di da The principle is timeless. Well, I have a bike, so I'm going to throw out Ellen White. Give me a break. It's your brain who's not your ears. Sorry, that wasn't nice. And then what do we do with this? Selected messages 48. The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. He's going to try and wipe it out. Well, let me go back. Satan will work ingeniously in different ways through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony. Friends, it's happening. All around us, it's happening. Within our church, it's happening. On our campuses, it's happening. It says it's Satan's plan to weaken the faith of God's people in the testimonies. Next, follow skepticism in regard to the vital points of our faith. So follow this progression. First, we're going to throw out Ellen White. Don't need her. She offends me. Gone. Then I'm going to start, follow, uh, next follows skepticism in regards to the vital points of our faith. You know, I'm not so sure about that creation bit. 
I'm kind of leaning more towards evolution, or at least a combination of the two. Yeah, that's where I'm at on that. So I'm starting to throw out main key pillars of our position. And then I doubt the Holy Scriptures altogether. You know, if it's creation, then it probably also is about all these other things, and this thing I have a problem with, and that thing. You know what? I just don't even think I'm going to go to church anymore. And then the downward march to perdition. Perdition, that's the word they use to describe Judas when he departed and went and hung himself. Do you see the downward progression? And God gave us this precious gift. And we want to throw it out. Now listen to me carefully. I'm almost done. <clears throat> but doesn't it just stand to reason? If I were the devil, if I were the enemy of Christ, if I were the enemy of God's chosen people, you could be certain that I would do everything in my power to destroy anything that would lead a person closer to my arch nemesis, Jesus Christ. I would do anything in my power to destroy what would draw people to his word and have them read it more. I would do anything and everything in my power to keep them away from that little book called Great Controversy that talks about my whole game plan and just exposes it. And how would I do it? With a snicker, with a snide remark, with every diabolical website I could raise up. I would even convince former Seventh-day Adventists to write whole books about how Ellen White is a fraud, about how the whole system is a fraud. That's what I'd do if I was the devil. Because within it is tucked things that we need to live through this time. And the devil knows that. And you better believe it makes him angry. I don't know about you. That's a good litmus test for me. If I'm doing something that makes the devil angry, maybe it's something I should keep doing. If I'm doing something that the devil's smiling and saying, ha-ha, good job, let me help you a little bit. Maybe I'm going in the wrong direction. Second Chronicles 2020, promise you can take to the bank. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets. I'd say all of them. If they carry through the test of a prophet, believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. Now, if you don't want to prosper... But if you do, if I do, let's do ourselves a favor and let's read our Bibles. Let's read the spirit of prophecy. Let's get excited about the times in which we're living. And, you know, the bottom line, Lord, I don't know how much more time we have here. I don't know how much time you will tarry. But I see some markers that are looking pretty well, like they're fulfilling everything that was written. And I want to be ready. And he says, good, I've given you something that will allow you to be ready. And so you can disregard it to your own peril. The Bible's wonderful. But I would challenge you. It's been the biggest, most fulfilling, most impactful thing, the, the singular biggest impactful thing that I have ever done is read the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy together. Period. And so I implore you with everything I have, 
Pick it up and read it. It's too hard to understand. No, it's not. You guys read some really deep stuff. Some hard to understand stuff. Hard English, hard this, hard that. We were reading a book the other day and we're like, why do they have to be so wordy? What are all these words? You can understand it. And you'll be blessed. So that's my challenge to you. Don't listen to the naysayers. Don't listen to the doubters. Don't disregard it. Maybe it's like cornflakes. Taste it again for the first time. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you care about us so much, that you love us enough to send prophets, to prepare us for what's impending. Lord, if we are, in fact, on the brink of the end of time, and I believe that we are, prophecy says that we are, we're in the toenails of the image, then, Lord, I pray that we will pick up your word regularly. And I'm not just speaking to them, I'm speaking to myself. That I will feed on your word, that I will feed on what you have given through your prophets so that I may prosper, that I may be blessed, that I may know the truth, and that the truth may set me free. And I pray that for my friends here tonight. Lord, all of us here, myself included, we've gotten caught up in the world, gotten caught up in the things of this life. It's easy to do. Our schedules are full. It's go, 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 go. And too easily we neglect that which is most important our one-on-one -on -one time with you. Lord, forgive us and draw us back that we may not miss the blessings that you have for us each and every day. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.